If I can introduce myself, my name is uh, Nigel Lloyd. I'm the pastor of uh, Gateway Church, Wrexham, so the people that are, uh, some of the people that you're next to, I am responsible. So if you want to uh, say anything about them, please say it to me and I'll, I'll tell the police. It's just, uh, this uh, is uh, not our building. Uh, this is a, a building of a congregation that already meets uh, here on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, they have honoured us by uh, allowing us to, to use their building on a Sunday night. Uh, so I, I just want to say on behalf of Gateway Church, thank you very much for serving us. Can we just give them, I know that they're not here, but can we give them a round of applause? I want to just look very briefly at, at the cost of being um, loved uh, the Apostle Paul uh, has, uh, is a major writer uh, in what we call the New Testament. Uh, he writes uh, to a church in Ephesus, uh, which if you get to go on a Mediterranean cruise these days, uh, you get to go to Ephesus. And in writing to them, he says this in chapter 4 and verses 32. Uh, he says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's writing to uh, this church And he's telling them that being loved by Jesus is the grounds, uh, the basis, the foundation of which we love other people. And the question is, uh, is how have we been loved and how can we measure that type of love? Well, this is how the Bible describes it. Because we as Christians say that the definition of love for us comes from the Bible. It's... You might think it comes from Valentine's Day or something like that, uh, but actually for us it comes from the Bible. And this is the way that the Bible describes love. It says that you can know the depth of somebody's love by what it costs them, by the cost of the love that somebody shows. The second point is that you can know the depth of somebody's love by how little the other person actually deserves it. Now that's unusual, isn't it? It's an unusual way of describing love. So you get this cost on the one side, and on the other is this love given to people who don't deserve it. The third area, and the way that the Bible describes love, is that we know the depth of someone's love for us by the greatness of the benefits that we actually received by being love. So what, do, what is the outcome of this, be, this love that we have received? And uh, I know, uh, being married, that uh, if you divide Wolverhampton into two, and uh, the, the lower, rather rough part is Willenhall, which is where I'm from, the posh part is Tettenhall, and I married up. The benefits were greater. So that is the way that it works. So what are the benefits that you get in regard to this? Fourthly, 
we know the depth of somebody's love. The Bible describes it in this way, extraordinary. It describes us by the freedom of which they love us. What that actually means is they choose to love you despite what you are. That's interesting because normally what happens in the world is that we fall out of love because of the other person. They do something, we don't love them. But in the way that they describe, the, the way the Bible describes love is that it actually says, I'm going to love you despite the way that you are. Now that's different, isn't it, in the, in the way that we look at it. But I want to suggest that's very powerful. It is a very powerful description of love. And what I want to focus on this evening is the first of those descriptions and actually show you a little bit of how Jesus loves us. So the first thing that I want to look at is that the depth of Christ's love for us is revealed in its costliness. In the verses that we read, it tells us that Christ loved you and gave himself. And pretty much it tells you what this love was. The giving of himself is the demonstration of that love. He gave. He gave of himself. Secondly, that the cost of the love was himself. It was his life. It wasn't just about money. It wasn't about time, although it was part of those things. It wasn't energy or inconvenience or even suffering. It was more than that. It wasn't. It was that the extent of the love was demonstrated by the fact that he gave himself. All of himself he gave to humanity. Thirdly, the love and this self-giving was for you. Christ loved you and gave himself for you. As, a, as the job that I do, as the pastor of the church, occasionally uh, some people will talk to me about the fact that they feel unloved. They feel that they are living in sometimes very unloved family backgrounds. Here's an extraordinary thing. Whatever background you are from, however you think about you, Here's what the Bible describes about you. It says, Christ loves you. You can reject that this evening, but the Bible is very clear about it, that you are loved by the Son of God. And do you know that you can't change that? You can walk out of this building tonight, you can go and do what you, whatever you want to do, and it will not change the fact that Jesus Christ loves you. That's the, that's the man. That's the God. That Jesus Christ loves you. The strange thing though, fourthly, about this love, is that the Father was very pleased with this act of loving you. <laughs> now you would think that the Father in heaven would say to the Son... Don't love this bunch of people because look at the way that they treat you. You'd think that would be fatherly counsel, wouldn't you? If I, as a father, because my daughter is getting married 
just in a few. Actually, in this building, if I thought that the guy was a rascal, the drummer, by the way, (laughs) and I would actually say to my daughter, do not marry the man. This is my fatherly advice to you, Rachel. (laughs) Do not marry the man. Would not every dad do that? Is that not the role of a father? And yet in this story, in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 2, it says, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That God looks at this love, this very one-sided love, and is pleased with the Son. He said, I love you for the way that you love them. That's extraordinary. I want to give you an illustration. There's a guy called uh, Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson uh, became a Christian in the time for the older guys in the Watergate thing. Have you ever seen the Frost Nixon stuff? Well, Chuck Colston was involved in that, uh, got, en- got ended up in prison, uh, became a Christian and became a, a, a Christian writer as well. And uh, he writes in one of his books uh, about a story of a group of American prisoners of war during the Second World War who were made to do hard labour in a prison camp. And each had got a shovel and their job was to dig each day. That's all they did, dig. They weren't asked to do anything else, just dig. Dig one day, dig the next. And what happened is that when they came in, they had to uh, give an account by presenting back to the guards their shovel every day. And uh, the shovels were counted, and then they were allowed back into their prison huts. And on one day, the guards was convinced that he had counted 19 shovels. But there were 20 of them. And he turned in rage onto the 20 prisoners, this is a true story, and demanded to know which one had not brought his shovel back. And of course, nobody responded. They actually didn't quite know what he was talking about. So the guard took out his machine gun... And he said that he would shoot five men if the guilty prisoner did not come forward. And after a moment of very tense silence, the youngest person amongst them, a 19-year-old rookie, came forward. He was the age of some of the students that are sitting amongst you. And he stepped forward, and with his head bowed down, he raised his hand. The, the guards grabbed him, took it out his pistol, placed it to his head, and shot him. And then he turned to warn others and said, don't you ever forget your shovel ever again. When he left, the men counted the shovels. The guard had made a mistake. He 
he'd miscounted the shovels. There were 20. And the boy had given his life so that his friends could live. Can you imagine the emotion as they were just left with one dead body? In the five or seconds, five or ten seconds that it took for that act, this boy had weighed up his whole future. He'd actually, I don't know, did he think, well, I'll never get married? Did he think, I'll, I'll never be educated? Did he think, I'll never drive a fast car with the, the, you know, the windows down and the music on? I guess he thought, oh, no children, no career, never fish with dad or play any games with dad. Somehow or another, he weighed all of these things up and made one decision. And Jesus said this in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. Jesus has loved you in this way only so much more. Consider the life that he laid down. One of the reasons that this story hits us so hard is that this was a 19-year-old guy. And in some ways, I don't know, in my own mind, I was thinking something like, well, if he'd been 90 and not 19, and the others had been 19, he might have said, well, it's a beautiful act of life, but he was at the end of his life. You know, you could understand it, can't you, in those terms. And yet Jesus, in laying down his life for us, was in a very similar situation. Jesus was young. Younger than me? Well, everybody's younger than me. He was 33 years old. He had what was, uh, 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 he had a known and, and uh, effective ministry. So if you like, he, he, he had work. <laughs> he was 33 years old. He was cut off, as we say, in his prime, before he had begun. He was the oldest son of a, a, a widowed mother. Joseph, his dad, if you remember uh, the Christmas story, had died. And uh, one of the last acts of his life was to make sure that his mother was cared for. On the cross, he said, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which was John, he said to the mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. The life he was giving up for you was young and from a human standpoint it was needed right now by a widowed mother. This life was a needed life. Interestingly the Bible says that he was sinless and perfect. It was a life most worthy actually of living. Peter wrote, uh, Peter the uh, disciple wrote later, he said, I, I've been with him 
I've lived with him, slept with him, talked with him, walked with him. He committed no sin. No deceit was ever found in his mouth. Extraordinary statement won't be said of me. In fact, even his enemies could say things of him that were, were of an incredible magnitude. How about Pilate, the guy standing who had the power to kill him or not? What would Pilate think of this guy? Rabble-rouser? Troublemaker? What sort of a man was he to an evil guy? An evil ruler? Pilate said this, I find no guilt in him. Extraordinary statements. So the life that he gave for us was no ordinary life of human value, which would be great enough. It was a sinless life. It had to be a sinless life because what was required to save you was a sinless sacrifice. And this is the life that he gave. A very valuable life. He was the son of God. Extraordinary again. Which means that he was God as well as man. He didn't need to do what he did. Because he was the son of God. We, we put a value, don't we, on life. We sort of say, well, we even do that today. You know, there's all, all the issues, the medical issues that we are having to work out in today's uh, society with medical ethics. How much is a person worth? How much is a person worth? And we're battling through that one. I want to ask you, how much, therefore, is the Son of God worth? that would give his life for you. And the cost even was that he was supremely loved by his father. This is my beloved son, his father said, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Uh, I don't know whether I've got a thing there. Let me just try that, see if that works. Oh yeah, I have. Consider now not only the life that Jesus sacrificed, but consider also the cost. To get to the point where he had to die for us. Here's an extraordinary thing. Jesus had to plan to die. It, it wasn't just a plan to come, it was a plan to die. I had to plan it before I came. He left the glory of heaven, took on human nature. He would get hungry and weary and suffer and die, things that he'd never known before. The incarnation was the, if you like, the time when he came as a baby was the preparation for those things. What preparation? A preparation for the cross. Suddenly things that he'd never experienced before would affect him. So nerve endings as he was nailed onto a cross would be excruciating. 
he needed a broad human back because he was going to be scourged. He needed a brow because a crown of thorns would be placed upon it. He needed a cheek, just like yours or mine, so that Judas could kiss it and another person could spit on it. He needed hands and feet just to suspend him there. He needed a place where a sword would pierce him. He needed a brain and a spinal cord that would work so that he could know the pain so that vinegar and gall he didn't have to take. So that he would feel it all on our behalf. This 19-year-old boy was a wonderful picture of love. His death was quick and painless. And yet what we know in history is that Jesus' death was one of the most excruciating deaths that that humankind has come up with. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 says, Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Don't breathe over those words. Don't just, well, don't do it. Think about it. He gave himself up for you. (laughs) The sacrifice was horrendous, but it was so that you might receive eternal life. In his word, in his thought, you were worth it. You realise that? Humanity was worth it. How much worth do you have? Well, I don't know how much you would worth you put on yourself or the person sitting next to you. But Jesus thinks you are worth dying for. <laughs> Extraordinary statement. I just cannot get over that somebody would do that for me. So, in conclusion then. And finally, how personally should we take this? Well, you can uh, personally feel love this way today and tomorrow and, and forever if you like. That would be one way of looking at this. That you could respond even today and say, I've never seen this before. This is extraordinary. What do I now do because of this? Or you can... It can remain a a general thing, great historic thing that you can look at from a distance and occasionally pop into church now and again when people have brought you there, brought you in. It can remain things like, well, it's like Snowdonia or Snowden. When I drive past it, it's magnificent, isn't it? But I don't drive past it every day, so, you know, that's... But do you know what is extraordinary? When you grasp the depth and the wonder of this sort of love for you, it affects you personally. I have to say this, I didn't ever set out in life to be a pastor. I actually set out in life to be everything but one, (laughs) and but a Christian. 
I was just talking to Belinda today, saying that, you know, when I was listening to a sermon like this, I was resisting it and hated the point that I'd been invited, actually. But Paul, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, who had been persecuting Christians all his life and who had met with Jesus on a road to Damascus, he said this, he said, The life which I now live in this flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who lived me and and who loved me and gave himself up for me. The cross is not historic. It's very personal. Hear this again. This is the Apostle Paul, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Can you see the depths of Jesus' love for you? Believe that he does love you? And do you under, even understand that, you know, what is this thing about going to church and how does that work? And this is an old building, isn't it? And, you know, well, what about your meeting this morning? Your meeting in a university and all that sort of stuff. A little bit different, isn't it? <laughs> do you know what these things are all about? They're about the wonderful uh, love of Jesus that he gives us an opportunity to respond back to his love. And that's what even this is about. This is not about watching a spectacle. This is about us grasping the wonder that Jesus loves for us and the opportunity for us to say, hey, (laughs) I need to follow this. And to follow that, you have to do what the Apostle Paul did, which is just two things. To leave behind the old and say, now, I'm going to live for the new. That's simple, isn't it? That's the problem with Christianity. Everybody said, it's not very complicated, is it? No, it isn't. You have to leave behind and start the new. So that you can say, (laughs) the life which I live, the live in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Some of the things that we're baptising, we're baptising them because they've come to know that. And if you'd like to know more about Jesus and how he can affect and change your life, uh, there are folk here that would love to share that with you. There is some literature at the back. You can take it. There are some Bibles. You can, you can do it secretly or openly. But please, <laughs> consider this wonderful person, Jesus who gave himself up for you.